Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to join us on Twitter and follow us at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray and I your questions, and we'll ask our distinguished guests during the show by using hashtag DisruptTV on Twitter. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong, CEO, founder of Constellation Research, a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, ZDNet, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, welcome, everybody. Happy Friday. We are on Disrupt TV with my co-host, Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. More importantly, best-selling author, and more importantly, one of the top CIO, CMO influencers in the world. But it's not about us. It's about our awesome guests. Who do we have today, Vala? This is an incredible higher education technology thought leadership segment, and we're going to kick off with Paige Francis, Associate CIO at the University of Arkansas. Paige is a successful executive IT leader. I've been following Paige on Twitter for some time now. She has wide range of experience. She has developed a reputation of being a strategic leader, a collaborator, and a technologist that can effectively use technology to create a constantly learning and growing environment. She's a national visionary speaker for technology on, and mobility, an award-winning education innovator, and constantly ranks as one of the top social CIOs to follow on Twitter. You can follow Paige on Twitter at CIO Paige, P-A-I-G-E. Welcome Paige to Disrupt TV. Why, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show and also one of the uh, top speakers at Educause every year. So, hey, let's start with a question around disruptive technologies, okay. right? What's got a lot of promise in the classroom? What's being requested by professors versus students? Like, I'm sure they're a little bit different. Uh, it is a little bit different. I mean, it used to be so easy. You know, we had a, a chalkboard or a whiteboard, and then we had our, our faculty members up there. Right now, what we're trying to do, you know, the University of Arkansas is a very traditional institution, and we're trying to take it into uh, to a next-level technology sort of environment. I will say that, you know, whoops. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hold on one second. And I mean, honestly, efficiency. with all of the efficiency going on, if I don't move sort of like a chicken every once in a while, everything dies <laughs> down here. So I will say, you know, I think that um, one of the things that's most requested and most obvious is us moving past this idea of having projectors in the classroom. Um, faculty members are requesting more and more the screens. It's also one of those situations to where you have to almost continually be asking, is there an app for that? Because nine times out of 10, there, there truly is. When you think back to, um, you know, your, your faculty member spent valuable time at the beginning of every class time asking for attendance checking and things along those lines, we can actually set up beacons now moving forward to try to track those and those tie directly into apps. Um, other areas that are of interest, particularly from our faculty to save our students money, you know, looking more and more towards digital textbooks in the classroom as opposed to having to come in and bring the actual paper textbooks to class. And then you also think about, you know, I think, I think long term about how fantastic it would be to get away from projectors and screens altogether and have there be some sort of way to be able to record the student or the professor's lecture 
to where it is streaming in the middle of class to the students' own mobile devices. Believe nice. it or not, in 2017, we still have faculty members that have baskets sitting at the beginning of class saying, put your mobile devices in here. We don't want you using them in class, right? Not very surprising. So what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to make it to where mobile devices become a part of the class as opposed to something that is forbidden in the classroom because, frankly, our students are going to use them anyway. No one's going old school asking for overhead projectors with like automated transparency scrollers? <laughs> uh, we do. So, so at Fairfield University, the institution that I was at last, we transformed 100% of our classrooms into be a little bit more tech forward. And we did find throughout the process the transparency projectors hidden in the craziest places because, yes, our faculty members still want to use their transparencies. <laughs> but there is an app for that. And so we just have to teach to that. That's awesome. Excellent. That's awesome. Paige, often, uh, you know, Ray talks about that the I in CIO is it's not just about information, it's about infrastructure, it's about intelligence, it's about integration, imagination, and so on and so forth. You, you have a reputation of being a collaborator and connector. What, what's some, what, give us some advice to other CIOs, not just in higher ed, but any industry, in terms of not only the understanding and awareness of the digital skills gap that exists between a CIO and some of his or her peers. Right. What do we need to do to get your folks around you to be more comfortable using technology and, and, and adapting to, to new behaviors? You know, I have to say, and this will likely be somewhat unpopular, but, you know, I will say that the I at times has been impediment. You know, I mean, there have been times where, uh, and part of the reason that I am who I am today is because I had the pleasure to work for some individuals who I strive not to be. And that would be the person that walks into the room in mixed company and is throwing acronyms around and making technology seem to be a lot more difficult than it is because the minute that the individuals in the room don't understand what you're saying, they're going to be pushing back and they're not interested in having the conversation. So I think that the, the, the biggest lesson that I've learned um, is how integral the relationship building is and the communication deep, meaningful relationships, not one-off meeting relationships to where you get what you want and you leave the room, but you need to have a drive on the inside where it's important for the individuals that you're speaking to to understand why you're doing what you're doing. So I think that I wrote a blog article like two or three years ago when we were going through the you know, CIO, CIO, Chief Innovation Officer, you know, all the different titles of what's the future of the CIO. You know, I think that we just need to sort of ride the tides along with the speed that technology is changing. With every step, you know, you eliminate the CIO role and suddenly all of these businesses are going to be steamrolled by technology vendors, you know, without someone that's in that position understanding how technology ties into business and making it realistic for the bottom line for the business. I think you just need to be a partner and it needs to be more than just this buzzword that's happening about how, you know, you need to focus on the business. You actually need to understand your business. You need to understand <laughs> who you're serving. It's important. No, that is a great place. And, and what's really interesting is as you as you talk about going from IT being IT led to business led to better collaboration, um, one of the things that's important is really how do you know what platform, what technologies to support the organization with? I mean, as you get to know the business, um, you, part of what you say was very interesting because good CIOs know when to say no. Right. Right. And so, how did you how do you get to that paradigm of saying no and people saying, "Oh, I get it now. I know why." Right. Well, I mean, I think that it's showing 
how technology can facilitate and make business easier. And if in the process you save money, great. But at the end of the day, a lot of what we do and a lot of our goals aren't going to save money. So how do I know what platform we need to invest in? You know, it's continually looking at continuous improvement efforts and vetting what you're using, why you need it, and what's out there. Do you have the runway to bet for the long term these days, or does everything still seem short term? I feel like it's short term. I mean, I feel like the minute that I try to make a prophecy over what's going to happen in five years, in four years, I'm going to feel silly having made that statement. So, you know, I always preface everything with, I have no idea where we're going to be in five years. But if I had to give my vision right now, I see us at least moving in this direction, moving away from other things. Got it. Ray and I were at a higher education summit with Professor Clay Christensen, and he told us that he believes in 10 years, a large majority, probably at his, with his estimate was about half colleges and universities are going to struggle with uh, competition against new emerging new uh, business models. And he was talking about distance learning and, and, and versus traditional classroom learning. How has that emerging uh, technology uh, changed IT requirements and the role of the CIO? You know, I think that for a long time, you know, the academic side of the house had gave a little bit of a side eye to the online learning experience. And you still see that today, you know, when you hear that someone has an online degree, it's a little bit like smirk, smirk. But, you know, we all have different journeys. We all have different paths. And the actual stats of the learner today have have sort of flipped. So what used to be the majority was the traditional learner, which was the straight out of high school learner. Um, it's flipped now. The traditional learner of today is yesterday's non-traditional learner. So if you can't, as an educational institution, embrace the fact that everyone has a different journey and that this is going to continually change over time, you're going to be in, real, in, in a real sore spot. What's great about the University of Arkansas is that they started embracing this distance learning concept years ago. And we've got an entire institution called Global Campus that's set up in order to support this. So what we try to do is we try to make sure from the technology point of view on campus that we are mirroring the needs of the distant learner and the non-traditional learner. So we're equipping our classrooms different. We are um, teaching our faculty members, you know, how the stats of today are showing that that, um, that hybrid class is the most engaging for students. You know, we're, we're trying to make sure that we are not different than our online and distant learning program or hybrid classes, that we are all teaching an educational experience. And just because the, our, our student may look different at the end of every single lecture, that's okay. We're still the University of Arkansas and we're going to serve all. You know, you, you wrote a great piece in Education Technology Insights way back, uh, kind of to that point, really about meeting students where they are virtually right. and in person. And, and the last part of that, what was interesting, was really about the fact that not just where they are, but within what budget they can accommodate. Right. And um, how has technology helped you um, and, and, of course, the university democratize that access um, to education? Well, what we have done is we have done every. Technology can play such a role in this if you are continually keeping in mind the student at the other end of the screen or at the other end of the classroom. So, you know, living in Arkansas, we have a region within our state that's referred to as the Delta region. And it's, if you have an example of have and have nots, 
they're in the have-nots region, and it's primarily because of accessibility and connectivity. So even with something as simple as focusing your efforts on VDI, with virtual desktop infrastructure, which is pretty unsexy when you just mention <laughs> it, right? I mean, unless you're a network infrastructure person, you think about the fact that what this is, right? You're thinking about the fact that what this is doing is this is taking the heavy lifting and the burden off of the student who traditionally may not be able to have an equal experience down in the Delta. They go home for spring break. They're doing distance learning from home. They are not going to have the same experience as someone residing up here in Bentonville a mile from Walmart headquarters because of connectivity and accessibility. VDI yep. breaks down those barriers. And so when you start looking for solutions and technologies that can actually facilitate a more streamlined and affordable experience for the student, it benefits all of us. The land of paradox. That's right. <laughs> We're we in had, it. We had Kim Stevenson, former uh, CIO of Intel. At the time, she had about 7,000 IT members working in her organization, and she said that there are no IT projects, there are only business projects. When you think about developing your investment thesis in terms of technology, how do you, how do you get your organization to be more business-led versus you know, chasing the shiny object or technology-led? Right, and I, and I think that, that um, what you try to do, it's an everyday, almost marketing ploy. And that what you're trying to do is the people that you're speaking with, you're trying to make them understand that the focus of technology has really switched from that of the feeds and speeds, the network and infrastructure, the wireless connectivity, the pay no attention to the IT man behind the curtain. It's not that anymore. People are more interested in the services. If you go and you talk to any audience on campus, any business unit, there's really very little mystery in technology any longer. Everyone knows what it's capable of right now. And so what you need to do is you need to keep that conversation going about how the focus needs to be on services, how this can impact them, how this can save them time, be more efficient, and get out of the conversations where you're focusing only on increasing the wireless. Because, you know, as Melissa and I clearly demonstrated earlier, you know, we're, we're at the 100 gig limit here. So, you know, I can talk all day about wireless, but people aren't hearing because it is like the utility piece of IT now. People are more interested in the services and the conveniences. Absolutely. Now, that's a really good point. Hey, well, I'm actually looking forward. I'm thinking about, you know, how you got into IT and how you look at folks that are coming into the IT career. Um, who are your mentors to date? And, um, you know, any advice for folks that are trying to come into IT as a career today? Right. And, so, and more specifically, advice to young women who want to pursue yep. a technology career and have aspirations of becoming CIOs, because right now only one in 10 CIOs are women. So as a father of two girls, I'm interested in your advice. And, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the, the mom of a seven-year-old girl who is more interested in Minecraft than in her own mom. <laughs> so, awesome. right. So, you know, I'll say, you know, my path to a career in IT was, um, I felt like I was following breadcrumbs. I mean, I didn't start out in IT. Uh, I just landed there. And my decision became deliberate, and I can remember this. It's when I was working at Thomson Reuters, and I had to make a decision whether or not I wanted to take them up on them providing me with a free master's degree. And so I was like, well, what do I want to do? I, I, I'm in IT. Is this where I want to be? Because I had never pictured myself being in IT. And I looked around. And one of my mentors, her name is Barbara Kaur, I think that she is a faculty member in Texas somewhere now, but she used to be the CIO at Dave & Buster's corporate office in Dallas. And she was the nice. first time I had ever seen, and this was in like 1990, where it was unheard of for a female leader in IT. And um, 
it was it was my first experience with a female leader in IT and I was like she's rocking this how how is this possible so you know I I thought about where do I want to go if I get my master's in IT I'm in it I mean there there's no changing from here and I looked around and there's no one else like me in IT so at that juncture I made the very deliberate decision of I will always stand out so I will always get a second look in IT because I'm a female leader but I need to make sure that each of my steps is methodical and it's legit. I don't want to get in the door just because I'm a female. I want to get in there and I want to stay there because I'm the best person for the job. And so I made that challenge for myself, invested in the degree, that point forward, I'm in. My advice for, for females, and I'm so disappointed when I continually think that we're making strides in this area and then the, the statistics come out and we're still decreasing in, in female leadership in, in IT and in STEM, um, IT is not your grandfather's or even your father's IT any longer. Um, there is space for everyone with every talent. Are you interested in communications and marketing? Are you interested in human resources? Are you interested in project planning? Are you interested in technology, programming, web design, graphics, any of it? I beg you to look at starting salaries in fields within IT and compare them to fields outside of IT and tell me why you're making the decision to not go into the IT field. If you're a female, it just doesn't make sense. And the old school, 24 seven, always on call, running around, sleeping on the floor during upgrades, that just doesn't really happen much anymore. God, you can I miss live the old a day. life, balance a family, balance <laughs> your work, you can get it all done as a male or a female. I highly encourage to give a second look at technology. Wow. Wise words from Paige Francis, Associate CIO of the University of Arkansas. You can follow her at on Twitter at CIO Page. Thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your insights. And of course, welcome to the alumni. Thank you. Paige, you crushed it. I hope you come back. That was awesome. I, at any time. <laughs> Thank you. You can see Ray, what a wonderful CIO. And uh, she was able to articulate and give real sage advice. So that was, that was terrific. Uh, well, uh, speaking of terrific advice and another thought leader in higher education, we welcome Kelly Walsh, CIO at the College of Westchester. Uh, Kelly is the Chief Information Officer at College of Westchester in White Plains, New York, and he's also uh, teaches and is a member of the faculty and administration. In 2009, Kelly founded the popular website EmergingEdTech.com. EmergingEdTech.com, where he writes regularly about engaging students and enhancing learning outcomes across all grades with the help of evolving digital technologies. Uh, Kelly also speaks frequently and conducts workshops about a variety of education technology topics at schools and conferences across the U.S. He's ranked uh, by the Huffington Post as the number three most uh, social influential thought leader in higher education, and he's and also top 100 social CIOs in higher education. Uh, Kelly published uh, the Flip Classroom Workshop uh, in a book which guides teachers through the development of their own flip instruction implementation plans. We'll talk about that during the show. Uh, last year, he became a community administrator for the Flipped Learning Network, a nonprofit organization that provides resources and research about flipped learning. You can follow Kelly on Twitter. He's a must follow. Great content on a daily basis at Emerging Ed Tech. E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G-E-D-T-E-C-H. Welcome, Kelly, to Disrupt TV. Welcome. Hi, Val. Hi, Ray. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the show. 
I am so psyched about the flipped classroom. I should let's start there. I think that's a great place and talk about this grassroots movement you're part of, this shift in teaching, and more importantly, what how is this transforming ed tech? Sure. Well, you know, um, when I came to the college and started exploring education technology uh, and blogging about it and really trying to immerse myself, I very quickly started to think, really, you know, what's what are the meaningful ways that technology can be used because it's real easy to just say, hey, you know what, I'm using uh, some website or whatever in my classroom and that's integrating technology and it's, it's, you know, there's so much more to it than that. And a few years in, I started to hear this buzz around what was being called the flipped classroom. So the idea, in a nutshell, and it's, it's more nuanced than this, but in a nutshell is that, well, we now have the ability, a very affordable ability to record lecture content. We don't have to use all that class time to um, to deliver the lecture and then send students home who may not have got it all, who may not have been paying a ton of attention and, you know, send them home with work to try and apply that. We can flip that model. We can make the learning content, the homework to some extent, and then bring them into the class and spend our class time face to face applying that information. And it just... But wait, that means I can't sleep in class anymore. I actually have to be active. I have to participate. I actually have to do real stuff. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because there is um, there's some pushback from some students because of that. <clears throat> They're used to that model of wait, I eight a.m. eight a.m. Friday class. Right. Yeah. Um, so they exactly. They're like, wait. Now I have to. I have to think. I have to communicate. I have to be active. I have to interact. And uh, yeah, absolutely, you do. Uh, so. It just makes so much sense that a lot of teachers have gotten excited about it, and it has grown and grown and grown. Uh, there's and this is happening all over the world now. There are university systems that have flipped their entire university system, uh, but more often it's it's one or two teachers in a given classroom. I speak to so many teachers, and uh, it'll often be that. Well, you know, what are you the only one doing it? Yeah, I am, but I've got some other folks who are interested. But uh, it's just continued to gain momentum. Kelly, compare maybe three years ago versus today. What's the rate of adoption? If you know, if I randomly pick ten institutions, how many would have at least some faculty exercising flipped classroom? I'd be willing to say easily nine out of ten. Um, yes, that was wow. not the case years ago. So I mean, I, I don't. You know, it's hard. You know, stats can be can be tricky. But um, I would say the vast majority of educators have heard of it. And in most schools from K to 12, you know, all across the spectrum of K to 12 and higher ed, um, somebody's doing it. That's fantastic. So Ray and I, you know, we, we, we just had a, uh, a digital transformation business summit in Boston. And we talked about and we had all the sports teams in Boston and some of the businesses, including Harvard University, uh, participating on a panel. And we talked about the impact of cloud computing, mobile technology, social technologies, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, AR, VR, and all these emerging technologies that are literally disrupting every business, small, medium, or large in every industry. Talk about some emerging technologies that, are, that have an impact of really changing the, 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 the learning model. We had the president of uh, Western Governing University on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he certainly talked a lot about, you know, how uh, WGU is leveraging emerging technologies to teach in a whole new way. What are, you, what are your thoughts in terms of the most impactful technologies and what we should be looking for in higher ed? Sure. Uh, yeah, and Western Governance has done some uh, amazing things. Um, so, you know, certainly video has a huge impact, right? It's opened up this door. Now, it, it, you don't always have to 
you know, have video, but let's just even say multimedia presentations create a much more exciting possibility for learning content that can be rewound and replayed. Uh, but video is just a huge part of that. And then hand in hand with that is mobile, right? Um, you know, Phil Kamarni, right, from University of Texas uh, years ago said, you know, you really, we all have to start thinking mobile first or mobile only. And it's so true. And we're all, um, you know, running to kind of catch up with that. So. Uh, I'm sure so many of us are saying, all right, well, we've got to convert our application, our admissions application to be purely mobile. We've got to convert everything we can. And in fact, that's really the um, the theme for our next, I'm working through our strategic planning cycle for 2018 to 2020. And that's one of our key themes, CW everywhere, we're calling it. The idea being that we've got to make that phone and we've got to do it in a convenient, easy way. We don't want four apps. We want one app, maybe two, and that phone has to be the, you know, the lifeline for the student. They can engage in learning. They can communicate when they need to. They can pay a bill. They can send a document. Um, so mobile is just has such potential. Um, and then, you know, building a little bit on some of what Paige had said, or, or I, all right, you mentioned Christian. Um, mentioning that, you know, 10 years out, will 50% of the universities be, um, you know, struggling a bit to kind of change their model. And I think we're all, you know, looking at that now and thinking about our model. Um, and the one thing about online, I think that one of the most fascinating things that we've barely begun to tap into is synchronous online. All right. So the regular online is frustrating. I just finished teaching an eight week online class. Um, after coming off an eight-week face-to-face class, and it was just so frustrating to struggle to connect with the students. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, being synchronous brings a lot of convenience, but being asynchronous brings in that social aspect that's missing, that connectivity. Um, and I, I think there's tremendous potential, uh, and Paige mentioned hybrid, and there's a lot of um, uh, you know studies and information out there that says hybrid's kind of the best, so that mix of um, you know, partly digital, partly face-to-face, uh, oh. -face. and similarly, you know, partly synchronous, partly asynchronous. So I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, then, uh, you know, another one that I, uh, comes to mind that um, is, is uh, not so much about direct teaching, but about how do students get accredited for their learning is this gradually evolving micro-credentials movement. Nice. So, uh, you know, there are We've all heard about MOOCs, right? A lot of excitement about it years ago, and then it died off, and some people are saying the MOOC is dead, but it's not dead. It's still out there, and in fact, those that have done the best have figured out how to offer a, a certificate for the learning. Uh, similarly, there's a lot going around with digital badges. It's gaining more and more momentum. So those are two constructs where you can learn at a smaller level, and if we can figure out on a wider scale how to accept credit for those things, and in fact, the... Um, uh, sometimes I get it right. I think it's the Lumina Foundation did a, a piece in 2014 on connecting credentials. They actually created a proposed framework or the beginning of one to say, hey, how can we figure out to give students better learning for what they know, whether they take, they get a digital badge. And of course, there's, you know, there's lifelong learning, testing out of things we already know. Um, so the thing that excites me is, you know, 10 years down the road, is it going to be easier than ever? Well, you can't even do it now, but is it going to be possible for students to kind of assemble their own degrees? You know, here's these things I've learned, and here's what I need to learn to finish this proposed degree. So uh, those are, you know, some of the things. I, I was I was in Austin this week with Phil Cromani at UT Systems, and uh, the work that he's doing is built on a foundation of blockchain. Yep. And so they're using ChainScript to create a persistent, progressive profile of the student where the student owns the data, it's somewhat based on competency-based education where it's modules of learning 
on a, on a learning path that's tied and integrated to a community of uh, businesses. So as the student is completing courses and getting their digital badge in a trusted chain script framework, instant notifications go to employers. And at some point when the employer decides that the student along the four-year journey or a two-year graduate journey has reached enough badges so that they can potentially be hired uh, as an intern or co-op, that entire system is now in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, powered by blockchain. Mm -hmm. The work is extraordinary. Uh, so yeah, Phil is definitely uh, yeah, on this path of micro-credentials and, and making sure that students can take courses at multiple universities and then have that aggregated into essentially a student passport that they can take with them. Yep. Um, and, and it's, uh, you know, in a trusted distributed framework. They're leading the way. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, in my opinion, is one of the most disruptive things I've seen in higher ed. So, so go ahead, Riz. No, no, it is. And when you think back to what you're saying about the Lumina Foundation, Goal 2025, getting folks credential, this is probably one of the fastest ways to do that. Um, but also helping to democratize, not just reducing the cost of education, but also when you can actually access that education. Right. And I think those have been some of the big shifts, not just in uh, micro-credentials. But let's talk about something uh, you're really uh, advocating as well, is digital artifacts as part of the learning process. Tell us people what is a digital artifact and, and what, what do you mean by um, keeping that part of the learning process? Well, digital artifact, and I'm guilty there, I think Paige's comment about using uh, certain types of terminology, that's just a way to say you created a file, you created something digital. Um, I'm I had the great pleasure to teach in the classroom a bit, and it's a ton of fun, and I love the idea of getting away from, I, I hate, you know, quizzes and rote memorization, and let's apply what we're learning. And of course, that varies depending upon the subject matter, but uh, I teach a digital literacy class, so it's perfect for that, and maybe not all classes are, but I think so many can be. And the idea of, you know, let's get away from, you know, remember these things and spit them back out or even partly apply them. Let students create stuff. It's so much fun. Um, I, I was interviewing a teacher the other day about how they uh, flip their classroom as a chemistry teacher. And we talked about homework and uh, I've got kids and I've been through some real struggles uh, or I've seen them struggle with uh, excessive amounts of homework. Um, and, and he says, you know, I don't give any homework unless it's connected to the learning. So as a chemistry teacher, he'll talk about, he'll send students home over Thanksgiving and say, go in the kitchen and make some videos about what's happening. Where's chemistry being applied? Look at the cooking. Look at the, the cranberry. Uh, how's that stuff held together, right? The cranberry sauce? Um, but I love that idea. Apply it in a real world sense. There's so many tools at our disposal. They've got those phones. They can do so many things with them. Let them leverage them as a way to demonstrate their learning and as and use that digital artifact to assess their learning. Uh, so that's the idea. What's new in colloidal suspensions? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's I think what's critically important uh, and the takeaway is that. And I think Ray has said this in the past, your personal brand, in a digital economy, your personal brand is your digital footprint plus your digital exhaust. And that exhaust is that unintended consequence of things that we leave behind that could potentially you know, uh, give pause when an employer, employer is looking to- uh, Take down world governments. Uh, <laughs> and pretend it. But the fact that if you can create content, if it's educational and inspiring videos, if it's blogs, if it's, uh, slide share or whatever it may be, uh, even even a presentation at school that can be uploaded to, to a community so 
so that you can uh, you know, educate and inspire and ignite positive action in your network. That is so important for students when they're looking for work. Because yeah. as a former CMO before I joined Salesforce, for two years I stopped looking at CVs when I was hiring digital talent to marketing. I, I would profile candidates uh, using uh, a powerful tool we had actually from Salesforce. And I could understand competence and character based on digital footprint of candidates. So I think resumes are dying. I think most advanced employers, especially if they're digital natives, meaning companies that were born in the cloud and they're mobile and social, they're not using traditional methods of recruiting talent. Uh, and in fact, I think it was Ladders or Fast Company that said the average managing, hiring manager recruiter spends about six to eight seconds looking at paper resumes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think the advice in terms of digital artifacts is probably the most important things in terms of future employability uh, for a student university right now. So I applaud you for, for, for championing that effort because I think it's critically important for them getting jobs. Now my question, tell us a little bit about Emerging EdTech your passion, what you've started in this movement and community that really depends on you and the, and the rest of the community to learn about new trends and best practices. Uh, sure, absolutely. So um, I, I believe that a CIO in this day and age needs to really understand their industry. Uh, it's essential if you're really gonna be able to make the best possible contribution uh, when you're around the table. So when I came to education, I would, had not been in education before, it was about nine years ago, and I purposely, I, I'd also begun to get interested more in blogging and I was absolutely paying attention to social media marketing as it was beginning to mature. Uh, and I said, you know what, I can kill a few birds with, with one stone here, so to speak, and uh, started a blog and started using social media to share what I was doing. And the whole goal was just, you know, research ed tech topics, write about them and ask for input and develop this network, this communication and this dialogue and participate in the dialogue that was already happening as a way to just keep learning. And along the way, um, it became a lot of fun. You know, some people would kind of look at to me as an expert, which is embarrassing early on because I didn't know that much. Um, but when I can share something with somebody, when I can help a teacher learn about an app um, or learn about a technique, it, it's, it's just a blast. Uh, and in fact, that did kind of roll into uh, developing training. I did, wrote some books around Flip Classroom, wrote, uh, did training for um, many teachers, hundreds of teachers all across the world, which was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, I'd had teachers from Siberia and Italy and Australia and America in these, in these workshops. I did these four-week workshops for many years around the Flip Classroom. Um, so it's, it's, it's a lot of fun helping people learn about these things. And then the other thing that was a natural outgrowth was, uh, as I learned more and had more connections, getting involved in the conversation at a higher level about what are these, you know, the things we've talked about, what kinds of technologies can really start to make a difference. So it's a lot of fun to, to take a look at what's happening with micro-credentials and digital badges and um, 3D printers and, uh, you know, so many of these technologies. Um, and it just, you know, had snowballed into a lot of these kinds of great conversations and connections and, you know, being here today. That's awesome. That's wow. really cool. That's a great story. Hey, one last question, and one that um, everybody's asking just in general, and this is probably the number one topic for the last two years, um, is really about cybersecurity. Um, given the types, the diversity of users, um, the amount of endpoints, uh, the type of information that you guys have on campus, um, how, do you, how do you address cybersecurity? What works for you? You know, let me tell you, boy, cybersecurity is one of the things that makes me think about the day I'm done being a CIO, because it's getting <laughs> harder and harder. Um, I was actually at the UB Tech conference last week and saw some yep. sessions on it, some scary things. 
Um, and uh, it made me think more and come back and have deeper dialogues. We have an outstanding network engineer who's really on top of these things. And I wrote over the weekend a couple of pieces that I shared on Emerging Ed Tech about this. And then it was almost this unfortunate, weird coincidence that uh, this worldwide attack happened on Tuesday and Wednesday, just as I'm We publishing. thought you predicted it. We weren't sure. <laughs> I know. I thought you think I'm, uh, you know, taking advantage of the fact that this just, just happened. But um, no, you know, th there's basics that you have to follow and you need top-notch network people. You need to constantly be learning about it. Um, one thing in particular that totally relates to this that is something I keep saying, I, I need to have this dialogue more with other CIOs. Um, back in 2015, the Department of Ed put out when they do these things called these Dear Colleagues letters, the financial aid group in the Department of Ed says, these are the kinds of things, if you're an institution getting Title IV aid that you have to pay attention to. So Title IV aid is the loans and the grants that keep yep. the vast majority of institutions going. You, you need them. Um, and and their, their guidance, people in every institution that are getting Title IV aid, which again is basically everyone, are signing an agreement every time they sign into the systems where they manage that process that says, we agree our institution is doing all these things. So things like encrypting email if they're sending out any kind of personally identifiable information um, and, and just a whole mess of these things. And th there's not a lot of, I haven't come across a lot of dialogue about this. And one of the requirements, is, and what I mean is specifically is one of the requirements is about education. You've got to be doing regular education for your staff and faculty about what they have to do. What is personally identifiable information? What should we not do? What, sh what is okay to do? Um, so that ongoing training is just so important because the vast majority of these incidents happen because people give up a password. Uh, they either get nailed through a phishing uh, attack or some other way they give up a password. Or you also mentioned endpoints, a whole other set of vulnerabilities that are, are very scary and have to be treated right. Um, but you know that piece to me is is really important, and I'm passionate about it because again, I don't, I haven't heard a lot of dialogue about what are schools doing to make for their ongoing training programs, um, and making sure they're staying on top of that, and just constantly getting in users' heads about about those things and the simple techniques. You know, lock your screen when you walk away, and all that oh, yeah. stuff. You know, you, I mean, you tweeted this um, bottom line, universities and colleges are very lucrative targets for nation state actors, organized crime and activists. And that's what got my attention. So I don't know what, 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 who presented that at UB Tech, but that was definitely something that caught my eye. So I wish I remember the gentleman's name. He was, a, he was a, an ex-general from the Air Force who, who led a lot of uh, projects around cybersecurity. I had a great conversation with him and his wife afterwards. Um, really fascinating and, and very educational, but you know, that's where that came from. I, I can't remember his name offhand right now. Well, wise advice here from Kelly Walsh CIO, Walsh, CIO at the College of Westchester. You can follow him at Emerging Ed Tech and uh, for some insightful tweets. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, guys. It was great. I really appreciate it. You were terrific. As Kelly was talking about security, I'm thinking about the growth of wearables, whether it's a watch or glass and sensors. Uh, so the Internet of Things, uh, coupled with the big data and the emergence of artificial intelligence in campuses, boy, uh, cybersecurity is going to be a yeah. And who's looking? Who's looking in on who? Is it the parents? <laughs> is it the? Is it someone else? Is it hey, who's spying in? Is it? Is it well, our friends in the federal government? This is our cleanup hitter spot where we save the last thought leader to come in and hit a grand slam. And that's so no pressure, Melissa. Emotional. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on the show. But Paige and Kelly are going to be tough acts to follow. Uh, now I'm really nervous. <laughs> we, are, we are here with Melissa Wu, Senior Vice President of Information Technology and CIO at Stony Brook University. 
Uh, Melissa has previously worked at the Central IT Organization of the University of Oregon, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Melissa is very active in higher education profession, professional organizations such as Educause and Internet2. She was a recipient of Educause Rising Star Award, which recognizes an emerging leader in higher education IT whose record reflects ongoing and exceptional growth and contribution to the profession and increased level of leadership and responsibility. I've been following, Ray and I have been following Melissa on Twitter for years now and learning from her. Uh, she has a PhD in biophysics, so we're gonna talk about how that helps her be an extraordinary CIO. I know Ray's waiting to uh, correlate those two uh, competencies, and uh, we all encourage you to follow Melissa on Twitter at the very cool uh, uh, Twitter handle, MZ. YW. Welcome, Melissa, to uh, Disrupt TV. Thank you so much. Hey, we're so excited to have you, but let me ask, let's start with the question that lots of people probably ask you. What, how does a person with a biophysics degree end up in IT? No, just kidding. How did you, how did you get into the field? What, what got you interested? What, what draw you, draw, drew you into, uh, you know, the IT world? I know, right? So <laughs> I have to say, you know, the downfall of every woman is a man. <laughs> Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's partially true. So I, after I got my degree in Illinois, I needed to stick around because of someone. And much to my grad mentor's chagrin, I really did not follow the research faculty path that he wanted me to follow. And I took a job in health physics, which, of course, is still a far throw from IT, quite frankly. So I think everyone has heard about the job description line that says other duties is assigned. Well, I did other duties not assigned. So I took over, and remember, this is the early, mid-90s at this point. I took over the website. I did some recoding of the interface for our databases for Y2K. I took over a large mailing list. It, you know, that's not a big deal now. In fact, it's an annoyance now to have an email mailing list. On, but it was a big deal back then for non-IT people. And what I started finding is that a lot of these IT things I was running were ways to break down communications barriers between people. And that was really compelling to me. Yes, it can start wars, and we've seen that. But more importantly, that time, it got people to talk to each other. And I said, you know, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of breaking down barriers, getting people to talk to each other and resolve differences. And I literally just basically threw away my entire career at that point and started as an entry-level Unix sysadmin and worked my way up from there. That's awesome. A lot of Pine and Elm and Unix. Oh, lovely. Talk about disruption. I love that. That's personal career disruption. We had uh, the best-selling author, Whitney Johnson, on our show, and she went from an administrator to uh, one of the most successful uh, traders on New York uh, Wall Street, and 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 then uh, uh, launched a VC firm with Dr. Clay Christensen, and now she's uh, one of the top uh, thought leaders in the world. So we keep reading about disrupt or higher education being ripe for disruption. Uh, you know, as a CIO, as a technologist, as someone who uh, will try to minimize disruption by, by leaning into technology, what advice do you have and what are you looking at in, in terms of what may radically change uh, colleges and universities for students? Well, certainly both Paige and Kelly covered a number of the things, but the piece that uh, I don't think was mentioned was the idea of using analytics for personalization. And that's going to be a big disruptor in the higher ed because right now this generation, in fact, we all expect 
things to be customized for us. I go to Amazon and it suggests a number of things that I should be buying because other people that bought what I just bought bought these things. Well, think about a student looking through a catalog of thousands of courses, trying, you know, tearing their hair out, trying to figure out what course to take. Well, wouldn't it be great if we had a way that basically just analyzed what they were looking at, analyzed what other students took and suggest it would suggest, hey, you know, you're interested in this course, why not, you know, other students like you took courses like this. And also there's personalization in the context of different learning styles and different rates of learning. And there is a concept known as adaptive learning where you actually use technology to look at how a student is progressing and actually cater and tailor the way that you know, things are being given to the students based on how they have been progressing. And those two things would be huge in addition to micro-credentialing and, and the other things that have already been mentioned. I agree with that 100%. In fact, my company is betting the future on what you just said, uh, using advanced analytics AI for mass personalization at scale. Um, and, and gleaning that contextual intelligence you need to create that adaptive model where it's really for marketeers, it's that, that nirvana of segmentation down to one. They yes. envision it. Uh, yes. So I, I, spot on, I 100% agree. Hey, now related to that, I mean, we're seeing a change in expectations, not just from consumers about technologies, um, organizations in general, enterprises, but what, what's changed for you over the last two to three years when you think about what are the student needs versus the, what are the needs of professors? I know we talked about overhead projectors in the last segment, <laughs> which just cracked me up. I actually, I actually do have an overhead projector at home and something, actually there's a funny story. Um, we had one of the top um, C. EO influencers in the world give us a keynote um, a couple years back and he basically his only request for AV was give me an overhead and transparencies <laughs> and it worked really well I mean if you, if, you, if you can pull it off it worked really well but you know you, you see that you know pretty rare these days but but what's shifting what's changing what, what are students saying I got to have well the demographic has changed as Paige I think pointed out and even though, even if we look at the traditional demographic of the 18 to 20 year old student, you are talking about it being more difficult to pay for college, which means a lot of these students have close to full-time jobs or maybe even full-time jobs. They don't have the flexibility of sitting in a classroom at specific times necessarily. And now let's pull in the non-traditional student who may be taking care of an aged parent at home, whatever, what we need is to be more flexible, more mobile. I mean, these, these are a game changer or anything that's mobile or like it. So what we need to do is we need to flex as an organization to suit those who can't sit in a little chair with a little desk thing in front of them during specific times of the day, during specific times of the week. And so that's the really big piece that, that everybody needs. Now, faculty are just, I think, as mobile. They want to be able to, say, create their courses and whatnot from anywhere without having to come to campus necessarily. So I think if there's one word I'd say is what both students and faculty want is flexibility. Well, regardless of the uh, stats in the industry, 66% of CIO guests on our show today were women. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Disrupting Me is crushing the stats uh, and, and, and the and that glass ceiling. But what advice, I asked the same question uh, from Paige, uh, you know, what advice do you have encouraging uh, young women to pursue a technology career 
and really rise to the highest level where you and Paige sit today? Well, Paige had a lot of great advice, and I'm definitely in agreement with everything Paige said. I think a lot of it is really changing the perception of IT as being this sort of den of nerdery. Yeah. And it's not even that. I mean, she was mentioning that there are not a lot of positions where there are people, you know, squatting in dark basements. And she didn't say it quite that way, but I, I call it that. <laughs> you know, squatting like mushrooms in basements, you know, with their faces lit by nothing but a, a monitor. There will still be positions like that. But what I'm saying is that even positions like that still require people to actually be able to talk to other people whether they're your direct peers or our external customers. So really, we're moving away from IT professionals being people that are completely antisocial to everyone, regardless of what your role is, being one of a communicator. And that is one of the strengths that many women have is their ability to communicate and the ability to facilitate. And so we need you, women out there, and if there's a piece of advice I have for those that are in tech and want to work their way up into an IT leadership role, it is, and this is just for both women as well as people of color, as well as understand that, you know what, the biases do exist. There is unconscious bias. A lot of us go through, un through unconscious bias training to try to mitigate that, but unconscious bias exists. It might be more difficult for you, but you know what, stick it out. You're better than that. And that's what I think Paige has done throughout her career. It's certainly what I've done throughout my career. Figure out a graceful way to deal with people that have those biases. I mean, I have this great role model who maybe you should have on your show at some point. I'd um, love Florence to. Who is that? Yeah, Florence Hudson, who's the Senior Vice President of Internet2 and Chief Innovation Officer. And we brought her to Stony Brook to give a presentation about her career journey. And what impresses me about her, she doesn't just talk about the stories about where she was you know, almost literally mistaken for the person who was going to serve coffee at a meeting. She always had a great, graceful way of dealing with it. And, you know, for all, well, all the rest of us, you know, who aren't as bright as she is, you know, I think of that at three in the morning afterward, right? But she always seemed <laughs> to have a comeback that was graceful, tactful, yet really just you know, socked it to the person that had the bias. Yeah, no, I remember her at IBM. She was back there. We would I love, love her. to have her on the show. We would love to have her. We'd love to have her. Yeah. Well, hey, no, this is this is wonderful, and and I got I got I got a few more questions for you, but it, we've got some interesting comments as well. Um, Umberto Serrano says hello, great conversations. Uh, we had a question about um, really what are some really good um, tech skills, tech learning skills that are mostly in demand today um, from from another person on 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 Twitter. Um, what's important? What what are some tech learning skills that people need to have? So can I answer that question by not answering the question? Yeah. <laughs> well, because, I mean, so the problem is chasing after a short-lived fad in tech is not necessarily the best career move. Because guess what? You know, today it's... Angular. Pick, you know, yeah. You know, basically, you know, take, pick your whatever tech of the day. Guess what? You know, next week there's going to be some, some better language out there that everyone's jumped on. What one really needs to focus on, I think, is the ability to analyze organization, you know, even bringing some project management skills, but maybe most importantly is the ability to communicate, to understand what the business wants and be able to translate that because that overall is going to carry you throughout a career. So analysis, project management, communication. Uh, would you include leadership in there as well? Leadership is certainly part of it, but leadership means so many different things. I mean, it does mean all those things and more. 
Got it. Now, some where, really do you, good advice. where do you spend your time researching in terms of whether it's business model innovation, technology? How do you, I talked to Phil Cromani, I keep mentioning him. He says he uses Twitter for his personal learning network and he gets a lot of ideas from social networking. Where do you spend your time in terms of staying ahead of emerging technologies and trends and so on and so forth? I have to admit it's social networks as well. At least that helps me for part of it. And of course, the, part of the problem there is, is what's been brought up as the problem of social media is that you tend to very narrowly scope you, and then you could literally be only getting one voice through your social media. So yes, I very highly depend on social media. And I feel you know, people like Phil and other people like Steve Filippo. Steve I mean, I could keep going on and on and on who challenge all the rest of us on how we look at technology. But I mean, some of it is going to this you know, standard websites in different areas other than higher ed, of course, because higher ed tends to be behind. I freely admit it is look at what other verticals are doing and look at different trade websites for other verticals and what they're doing in IT. No, great points. So, so quick question for you, just last question, really, as, as we look in towards like three to five years out, um, you know, when we think about the IT environment, we think about all the changes that are happening in business models and higher education. Um, where do you see the role? What, what do CIOs have to do um, better to have a seat at the table, guide people in the right direction, keep people from jumping into the latest fad and trends? Um, some of the areas that we're talking about, you know, learning when to say no. Like, what, what's, what's some good advice for folks? Well, we don't necessarily want to keep people from jumping on the latest trends, by the way, or else we become the CI, CI no, I think that Paige mentioned. <laughs> at least not jump into the wrong direction. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, it's a, well, actually, maybe I should rip off of that one is that maybe we need to become more agile so that we can actually very quickly iterate through the different things that people want to try. I mean, part of the issue with IT, enterprise IT in general, is that, you know, we take 18 months to roll out a project. And, you know, by that time, guy, by that, that's gone. If, if that was, you know, not just yesterday's news, that was, you know, basically last century's news. And so the idea administrators is, later. <laughs> well, I think we need to become more agile in order to serve the customer better. And Kelly said a little bit about understanding the business of what you do. And then for a higher ed CIO, it means understanding the concerns of the provost. It's understanding the concerns of the registrar. It's understanding the concerns of the university advancement officer. I mean, the person who's bringing in the donor money. Uh, so it, it's really knowing what they care about and being able to speak to that, but more importantly, not speaking at them, but listening to what the concerns are and working with them on how best to solve the problems. Wow, take an empathetic approach and go from the stakeholder and work from there. So, hey, thank you so much for being on the show. We are all with Melissa Woos, SVP of Information Technology and CIO at Stony Brook University. You can follow her on Twitter at MZYW. Thanks a lot for being on the show and being an alum. Thank you. Fantastic. I told you, clean up, hit our grand slam. Amazing. Three amazing CIOs, just absolute trailblazers and change agents in higher ed. It's, we it's, have to have a conference about this with all these great folks. Honestly, it's, it's uh, yeah, uh, we should have mentioned your, uh, your, your conference uh, in October. Uh, all three would be amazing. Um, and if you have a higher ed panel, I can't think of three better, stronger thought leaders than we just had on the show. So thank you, Kelly and, and Melissa and Paige. It's terrific. Wow. Well, it's Friday, Disrupt TV Friday. What do we have next Friday for episode 69? Episode 69, uh, well over 200 uh, executives that we have interviewed. So we encourage you to uh, 
check out our podcasts. Uh, you can get them on SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, again, 200 Fortune 1000 executives, uh, venture capitalists, uh, CEOs of a number of unicorns, uh, media and tech personalities. So check out our podcasts on Disrupt TV. Episode 69, this is going to be an incredible episode. We're starting off with John Nosta, who's the president of Nosta Labs, one of the top thought leaders in healthcare. He's a regular contributor to Forbes, and he's bleeding edge technology and, and, and futures in terms of healthcare. Check his workout in Forbes uh, before next Friday, and you'll see how incredibly honored we are to have him on the show. John's followed by Balaji Suravansin, who's a board member at Andreessen Horowitz, and he's also the CEO and co-founder of 21.co. So you want to talk about cryptocurrency uh, and, and the importance of uh, blockchain in healthcare. Uh, he is giving massive online open courses at Stanford University, and over 200,000 students have listened to Balaji and his online courses. So he's one of the top thought leaders and futurists in Silicon Valley, and again, a member of Andreessen Horowitz uh, VC firm. And then we end with Robin Farman Farman, who's a professional speaker, VP of Invicta Medical, Octa Vallon, and board of director at Oregon Preservation Alliance. So three extraordinary uh, folks. Uh, make sure you have a hearty lunch and you rest up because <laughs> we're going to drop a lot of science on you next Friday. We'll see you. <laughs> 11 a.m., 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. We'll catch you for the next Disrupt TV. So thanks, everyone. Have an awesome weekend. And for those celebrating the 4th of July, enjoy. Be safe. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.